Well, it's certainly been long enough that I'd forgotten I had a podcast. So I wouldn't be surprised if everyone else had as well. There's been a few races since we last met. Three, in fact. Three, I'd say, fairly good races. Ones that not necessarily were the most interesting things that ever happened in the sport, but have furthered interesting storylines for the 2022 season. We've had Australia, Imola and Miami, which altogether equals Ostrimolami. Ostrimolami, which sounds like a lovely Italian pasta dish. So let's get on with it. Recorded a hell of a lot later than it probably should have been for a podcast covering a sport which is ongoing and live, this is the F1 More Thing podcast with your host, a man who in the interim, since last speaking to you, has actually been to Imola, where he should have recorded a podcast if he was slightly more professional. However, as ever, this is recorded from his parents' house in Oxfordshire and not from the back of an Italian transit, which is the best way to view a racetrack. It's Joe Pilbrow. Welcome one, welcome all to the F1 More Thing podcast. It's been a little while, my apologies for that. We're just going to have a bumper three race episode. Um, it's been a very work heavy couple of weeks, which is why I haven't had time to record one of these. And it is a shame, bearing in mind the aim at the start of the podcast was to be weekly. And also, you know, generally it's um, it's old news now. It feels old to me too. But sometimes it might be good to recap because we're going to have some storylines throughout the season that are going to develop on these races. And I think the first mild section of the season is out of the way. From here on in, from Barcelona onwards, it's going to be an upgrade-filled few races, I think, from what it looks like the teams are, are talking about now with lots of teams coming with big aero packages and engine upgrades and things like that. So theoretically, we should see some leapfrogging from here on in. So that might be the first section of Ferrari, Red Bull, not domination, but certainly up the front more than anyone else kind of races that we see. Um, it seems that coming up, Ferrari are going to have some major upgrades. Mercedes are going to have some major upgrades. Pretty much everyone is, um, apart from Sebastian Vettel, who is not going to get any upgrades. They're just going to Lance Stroll. I'm not quite sure how Aston Martin decide that. Obviously, there's the obvious. But the majority of the time, teams will pick who gets the upgrades, either based on a system of, well, you had the last one, so now it's the other guy's turn, or also based on who's doing better in the championship or has the best results. I can never decide whether you, if I was the team principal, whether I would give the upgrades to the driver who's doing the best as a reward for doing the best and to get the team ultimately higher up the championship for more money or whether you'd give them to the person who's done the worst because they clearly need more help and to get them higher up the championship and to therefore match the teammates higher up the championship would be good. Obviously, that depends on the upgrades being half decent. You're assuming that it's going to give you enough lap time that it will be 
effective enough to match two teammates who are, let's face it, doing different things performance-wise at the moment. Uh, Sebastian has a big, heavy, how can he handle it, four points in the championship, which puts him 14th. And Lance Stroll has a massive, huge, how can he handle it, two points in 17th. Um, Aston really haven't done very, very good this season. So I'm hoping that, you know, the upgrades and their very high aspirations, certainly from uh, Daddy Stroll in uh, F1 interviews and things, comes to light and we finally see a bit of performance. It would be nice to give Seb, in what, if we're being honest with ourselves, is one of his last seasons in Formula 1, a good shot or a good, good enough car to be fighting for something decent, you know? We don't like seeing people that are world champions fighting for backmarker positions. It's depressing. And maybe if he was further up the grid, maybe, you know, him and him and Mick could uh, stop bloody crashing into each other like the great mates they are. While we're talking about Aston Martin and Seb Vettel, I suppose for um, Formula One fans, especially in the UK, and those who are in any way sort of politically interested or engaged, will have uh, been pretty happy with our good friend Seb going on Question Time recently. I've uh, not watched Question Time in a little while. I tend to only watch it when sort of unique or guests you wouldn't expect to go on it go on it. And Seb Vettel is one of those. Um, I thought he did incredibly well, actually, and it's a real shame that someone who drives cars for a living is the most coherent, logical, and sensical on the stage and you can see throughout the episode that the audience I think probably would agree with that sentiment you know he's able to be interesting and commonsensical and funny in a second language very impressively so hats off to Seb I've also been thinking about how not many Formula One drivers would encourage the amount of trust from a team to go on a show like that. Not many teams would let any driver go on that, so fair play to Aston Martin, but also you wouldn't trust... Me- I, you could count on probably 50% of your fingers on one hand the amount of drivers that you would say, we're probably not going to go on this show and embarrass ourselves entirely if we let this guy on. So... Fair play to Seb. Fair play to him for being in that two-and-a-half-finger group. It's a shame that the full extent to which I will talk about Aston Martin has probably just been covered, and most of that wasn't on track. They've had a fairly unremarkable few races in the last three, and actually since the start of the season, you know, they actually did quite well. I think they got got a double points finish in Imola, which was pretty good. Um... I'm not sure how or where that came from, really. No one seems to really understand it. But especially in the case of Lance Stroll, it seems that he either has a completely under-the-radar race that nobody sees, he, he's hardly on camera, or he's crashed into someone. You know, the, the thing that in Australia with Latifi, I feel like I hadn't seen him for the entire race, and the one shot that I did see was of him doing something stupid. So let's hope that that can change. We don't like people to just go completely under the radar. Um, 
Unfortunately, Latif is exactly the same. I'm not sure if he's ever had any shot on TV this season that hasn't been him either making a mistake, crashing into a wall, or crashing into someone else. These great um, statistics, Twitter accounts that post lovely graphics of race data, tyre tire graphics, you know, qualifying comparisons. I'd love to just do a, this is how many times Latifi was on television, and this is how many times it was of him crashing or doing something stupid. Um, I think it would be a rather depressing graphic for him. I'm not saying we show it to him, but, you know, maybe someone could get on that. I don't know how you display that information. We maybe need some sort of maths expert on that. Um, I'm thinking maybe a bar chart or a pie graph. Pie, pie, bar graph, bar graph or a pie chart. Yeah, it's been a while since I did any maths and that was only GCSE and even that wasn't very good. Anyway, I've got slightly ahead of myself. Um, that's the most I will talk about Aston Martin probably all year. Unless the F1 predictor bot that I saw on Twitter the other day is correct. And Sebastian Vettel is going to win Monza this year for Aston Martin. I'd love to see that come true. If it does, the Illuminati's real. I want to tell you a little bit about my trip to Imola. It was incredibly beautiful. So uh, welcome to what I'm calling Imola Angolo. Which, for somebody who hasn't started their Duolingo Italian course, is Imola Corner. Imola Angolo. Prego. Time in Imola was short but sweet e dolce. Um, it was incredibly nice. I would recommend it to any of you to uh, go and check out Imola, even if it's only for a few days. Had a lovely time walking around. My first day, I walked around um, Parco Acqua Minerale, which is, if you don't know, which you should know, uh, is the park in the middle of the track essentially um, and it's where you can basically walk around sort of two or three meters from the track um, checking out all the sites there's sort of like tree covered areas with hills that you can just sit on a bench and look at some of the corners and you can go and say hello to Ayrton his memorial is in that park and uh, it's a very powerful place because you you've seen it so many times and you are aware of how how important that story is to Formula One. So it's it's sort of an out-of-body experience to just go and sit on one of the benches nearby and just look at the statue and take in all the flags and the messages that are on the on the fence next to it. It's uh it's a very strange place to just sit. It's quite hard to be entirely present because you just got sort of replays of things going through your heads and footage of stuff that you've seen before as you walk around but it's incredibly cool um 
the second day I just went and cycled around Bologna and well to be honest I had a lot more exercise on that day than I thought because I was trying to read signs rather than use my phone and I just ended up cycling around in circles ending up in little sort of closes and dead ends and cul-de-sacs that I didn't want to go down and then I had to just sit in a sort of tree-covered alleyway, essentially. It was, alleyway is doing it a disservice because it was, you know, an Italian entrance to a park, so it was hardly an alleyway. It was, you know, romantic and beautiful for an alleyway. And one of the main things that came out of that cycle ride was a visit to an Italian McDonald's where I thought, I'm going to do all of this in Italian and I'm going to get something that you can't get in England. And the thing that I got that you can get in McDonald's in Italy that you can't get in England is a Peroni. So I had exactly the same meal that I would have had in England, but I had a beer. And uh, they give you a bottle of beer. And then as soon as you sit down in a nice park to enjoy your meal, you think, oh, yeah. Probably could have done with a bottle opener. So commence another 10 minutes of trying to do that thing where you smash it on the corner of a bench to try and get the lid off of it. Worked eventually. It was a bit hot, the beer. My only complaint. Very nice, though. Um, I had some good recommendations from my uh, Airbnb owner, I suppose, Alda. Lovely Alda, who um, looked after me very well, gave me some good recommendations to go and see the main um, site in Bologna, which is these, it's called the Two Towers. So it's these sort of two really old towers that are sort of leaning towards each other. Um, and it's just next to, I think, one of the campuses for one of the oldest universities in the world, which was very nice. It had some lovely construction work going around it and some uh, lovely bits of graffiti on the construction work. So it was very pleasant. I've got some lovely pictures of the sun in the background, a beautiful clear blue sky, some Italian traffic going past, these two towers, and some lovely Italian graffiti that I don't know what any of it means. One of it just says the word bear. It's sort of like I imagine when tourists come and they go and see the Houses of Parliament because Big Ben is next door to it, but for the last few years Big Ben has been surrounded in scaffolding, that kind of thing. It was very nice, though. Um, as well as getting a Peroni from the Italian McDonald's, I visited the Italian co-op multiple times to go and get um, oven pizzas because I'm a horrible, horrible tourist. Good pizzas. Not too bad. Tried some Italian wine. I'm trying to get into wine. I'm so desperate to become some guy that can drink wine. It's still vinegar to me at the moment, but I had a lovely... Vigna dello Sperone, which translates, I think, to red wine. It was um, certainly doing the job that alcohol does, having not drunk in almost a year. Um, fun evening, yeah, not, not too bad at all. And then on my final day, I had booked a tour of the track, where you go round in an Italian Ford Transit um, with a lovely tour guide who did everything in Italian 
and everything in English. So I'm constantly trying to Google Translate and not succeed in any way. Um, so we were with, I was with four guys from Italy. So they were listening to all of the Italian. And then I was with myself and this Canadian family of three with a little kid who had his Ferrari t-shirt on and as we were going around the track was just, you know, naming things. I mean, mainly he was quite focused on that's where science crashed at the last race. So sorry, Carlos. But um, he certainly knew his stuff. And I think, you know, there's one way to view a track and it is in a Formula One car would be a pretty good way. But, you know, you don't get the sights, do you? You don't get to slow down and inspect some of the catch fencing or look in the gravel for maybe a bit of carbon fibre they've missed that you can take home as a souvenir. No, go around it slowly in a transit van until you are told that you are not allowed to go on the track anymore because they're doing some... uh, It was Porsche Super Cup, I think it's called. They were on the track and then we had to just stand next to the track for a bit and wait for them to go past. But that was an experience in itself. There was uh, some Italian F4 going on and that sort of things. Uh, We got some nice pictures in front of the sign on the grid. We got to go and see the the sort of stewards room as well, where they've got all of the different cameras and all of the screens and schedules and track maps and stuff. So that was very cool. So I would highly, highly recommend it. And another great thing about Italy, I I don't know if this is all over Italy. I could imagine that it is, but especially in Imola, you can just walk down just a normal road that's just got a police station on it or a hairdresser's, and in the window of certain shops, they've just got essentially murals to Ferrari. There's little models of cars, they've got posters and flags, and um, one of them had a had two tyres, like Goodyear classic tyres. That one looks like it's from, that one's got no tread on it, so that one's got to be from sort of like... 80s 90s cars i think there's no sign it says it's a pole position tire though so it's a it's a pretty fast one with some lovely wine in the window and some little little figurines it's great you just walk around and everything is ferrari you just can't you can't miss it and one of the things that i noticed in the gift shop talking of tires at the track before you go on the tour you can have a go on the simulator which i'm I didn't do because I thought, oh, that'll be rubbish. It looked pretty fun, to be fair. I watched the Canadian kid have a go on it. He he was rubbish, but fair enough. You know, he only got four laps. I mean, at some point he ended up in Lando Norris. And I mean that as a sort of glitch. He was just parked in the car and not even the lady who was uh, sort of running the simulators knew how to get him out. Um... I don't think that's happened in real life, but maybe I'll be disproven by the Formula One historians. If you wanted to buy a small sort of replica Pirelli tyre, I think part of the limited edition 150 years of Pirelli thing, there's a soft P0 Pirelli tyre for a cool €1,190 if you wanted to buy one of those. What I did was I um, took a picture of it because that was free and uh, I'll just pretend that I have it in my room. I think that pretty much covers all of Imola. The aqua minerale water surrounding the track is very beautiful. There was a temptation to go and jump in, 
I wasn't sure whether that was the done thing. And it was a sort of funny colour. It's it's a nice Italian clear water lake that sort of looks like it's got swimming pool chlorine in it. It's it's too clean. So I didn't want to, you know, come out a different colour or with superpowers. But maybe next time. But overall, a beautiful trip to Imola where Alda served me breakfast every day, which was very nice of her, which... Uh, as far as I can tell, the only thing that Italians eat in the morning for breakfast is sort of sweet biscuit toast with Nutella on it. That's what I had every day. It was um, very nice, very sweet, not filling. So obviously the McDonald's and the Peroni helped me at lunch, but it was very sweet. Bis- biscotto, biscotto ten, or some, something to that, to that effect. Um, I've also since looked up the coffee machine that uh, Alda had in her Airbnb, uh, and it's a Mocador, which is a ve- it was just one of the best coffees, and I've been looking for something like that in my house for quite a long time. And the reason I don't have one in my house is because it's thousands of pounds. So I'll uh, I'll just have to fly back over to Imola if I want a nice coffee like that again. It is quite nice actually to go on a weekend after a race to see what the city and the place and the track is like on the down low, on the quiet, you know. I definitely want to go to a race weekend. Apparently it was a nightmare with the parking, so I'm glad I didn't. But overall, it's a great place to go because you you feel like a tourist, and you are, but it's not a, not a touristy place. You know, if you go to Rome or, you know, Venice and places like that, um, you're surrounded by tourists. I think Imola is slightly different. It's not as well known to people outside of Formula One. So it's a nice place to go and pretend that you live there for a bit. So, grazie Imola. Bellissimo bastardo. Thank you for listening to this message from the Italian Tourist Board. Please visit Imola. Immediately. <laughs> So it seems so far that Red Bull have solved the reliability issues that they have had at the start of the year. Um, Two fairly comprehensive wins in the last couple of races from Max Verstappen and both the cars have actually finished. Apart from Checo's in uh, Miami, which wasn't looking good for a while. Um, Significant loss of power on the straights. Still not really sure what that is, but he managed to he managed to nurse it, so it's okay. As soon as these cars start getting reliable and being upgraded, they're going to be dangerous um, in terms of dominating. It seems that Ferrari haven't had any sort of answers to Red Bull in the last couple of races. They've gotten very close, and Charles Leclerc has put an absolute shift in, especially after the safety car in Miami, to get anywhere near Verstappen, but Verstappen's just sort of, you know, been very put out after the race but seemingly has very in a very controlled way and a very calm way just said all right well I'll just up my pace and I'll win the race so ha it seems that straight line speed is really an important factor you know Red Bull are winning races with a car that has an immense straight line speed Williams has an immense straight line speed and in Imola was able to not only hold back 
much faster cars. You know, that uh, Lewis Hamilton and Pierre Gasly were not overtaking. They just couldn't get past. It's partly the, the difficulty of the track itself, but, you know, just having that straight line speed advantage on the straight was enough just to put a defensive move on and keep them behind for pretty much the entire race. But, you know, Albon's been doing unbelievable things in just keeping up on race pace and getting in the points and pulling off good strategies. Him and, and George Russell are seemingly tyre whisperers, shitbox whisperers, strategy whisperers, just putting it over on everybody. And it's it's really good stuff. It's really good to see. Um, everyone else needs to up their game straight line speed-wise. It doesn't seem to be, I don't think, anything power unit related, so it's just the way that they're using the aero on their car to generate downforce or not to, or to avoid having drag. So hopefully with the upgrades that both Ferrari are going to bring and Mercedes are going to bring, they'll even them out slightly and we can just put it down to driver talent or driver instinct rather than car, because that would be interesting. Unfortunately for Ferrari, I think the position of number two for Carlos has been pretty much decided at this point. I think I, I think I said it last time that unless something pretty major happens to Charles in these next few races, that Carlos is going to have that decision made for him. You know, I don't I don't think they're going to explicitly say Carlos is number two and therefore we go for Charles from now, from this early on in the season, especially when Red Bull are as strong as they are. They probably just need to work out how to even match them in the first place but when Carlos is as far behind in the championship and has been having such terrible luck when it comes to crashes or the the incidents in Imola was just entirely not his fault he had problems in qualifying and practice and all that sort of stuff it just hasn't what's the phrase about the rub he hasn't he hasn't got he hasn't got the rub of the green. Is that what it is? There you go. I mean, at the moment, he's 53 points to Charles' 104. And that's that's not good. I think that's the biggest gap, is it, between teammates? I think it is, you know. I mean, it becomes very hard to um, get a big gap like that when you go further down because, you know, you get to Pierre Gasly and, well, Yuki Tsunoda in 12th and he's only got 10, so... That's the that's the biggest gap between teammates that we've got, and I think the the podium in Miami will satiate his troubles a little bit. You know, people think that people kept saying that he really needed to get that result on the board to get back, and I think that's partly true. But part of me thinks that Carlos doesn't think like that. You know, I th- I think unless he gets a win on the board or gets one up on Charles, he's not going to feel that his luck has changed or that he's on track to match or even beat Charles this year. Charles really stepped it up and Carlos hasn't done it yet. He was really good last year and beat Charles in his first year. So something's still there to come. Something's something's going to come for him, but it needs to happen pretty quick because Charles is just going to take over otherwise. And if Charles has stepped it up to match Verstappen, then we might have some problems for for old science mobile something else i've noticed from sort of a few onboards that i've seen of of joe guan yu is that i i like his i like his racing i like his 
he's sort of gone under the radar in, in a couple of races as well. But from the very few onboards that I've seen, it, it's it just seems to be he just seems to be quite a mature racer. He doesn't seem to have done anything completely mad yet or done any mad mistakes. Um, he just seems to have been quietly getting on with things and avoided doing things that, you know, in his rookie year that Sonoda seemed to do. You know, he Sonoda had a fantastic first race last year in, in Bahrain and then he couldn't quite maintain that and then started doing stupid things and crashing too much, you know, just pushing it over the limit in, in Imola. But Joe, although I've hardly seen anything in regards to sort of interviews with him, etc., you can sort of see just by the way he's been commanding the car. It's quite mature. There might have been a few mistakes that I've missed there that I might be overlooking. But at the same time, I think if you start off slowly and just build, you can do something very good. And he's got a very good teacher teammate in uh, Valtteri Bottas. So that's going to that's gonna do some good things. So we talked a little bit about Red Bull. We've talked a bit about Ferrari. Let's go to Mercedes. Let's see what the update on them in the driver's standings is. Quite a big gap between Russell and Hamilton, actually. It is surprising to which the consistency of both of them, but George Russell, strategy-wise, has been pulling. The only driver to finish in the top five in every race is impressive stuff. Congratulations to George. And it was very impressive, the calls that he was making in Miami. Just wait for a safety car and see what happens and, and pull the trigger when it's necessary. That's that's classic shitbox whispering driving. And, you know, it's a similar thing to what Albon's done, and it seems to be to be working for him to get some points. And... He seemed to be fairly confident that a safety car would happen at some point. I don't know how the hell you know that. You know, I, I can go whole races and not be a very good predictor of that kind of thing, but fair play. And Hamilton seems to be struggling safety car-wise, just not getting that luck or not pulling the trigger at the right time. And I think he seems to be... He's, he's utilising the same experience of being in the midfield, or at least at the top of the midfield. Um, and he's using the same experience that he's had in previous seasons, I think. You know, on the rare occasions throughout the most recent years where he's been in the midfield and trying to get rewarded and, and make up for lost ground in the same way. But I, I don't think that strategy works when your car is, let's face it, a little bit shite. When Hamilton's there for a race or two because of a penalty, you know, then the the safe passive mode of just getting through the first few corners and pulling off really clean overtakes is useful. And he put that to, you know, there's no better example of that than in Brazil last year where he's at the back or in 10th and he's just an incredibly clean, calculated, pulls off every overtake as it needs to be done kind of race. But in places like Imola this year, it just sort of left him open to the very attacking mindset of all of the midfield drivers. And I, I think I've mentioned this before about all of the people that have been in crap cars or have been in the midfield for a while fight for every little thing and are always constantly on it. And it doesn't seem that Hamilton has done or has used that same mindset in this in this season to the best of his ability. That's what I, I feel as if... He could be equal to George and is on pace in lots of instances. It's not like George is faster, but the the mindset and the strategy calls and stuff like that 
just make up the difference. And I mean, Mercedes have done an incredible job at, at managing to salvage the amount of points that they have from a disappointing car. You know, for George to be fourth above a Ferrari driver is incredibly impressive. And to be that far ahead of, you know, there's sort of major groups within the standings at the moment. And Charles is obviously way out in the lead. Max is not far behind. Sergio is not far behind him. And then there's a little step down to George and a little step down to Carlos. And then a bigger step down to Lewis and Lando and Valtteri and Esteban. And then an even bigger step down to Kevin and Daniel and Yuki. So to be up in that sort of top few groups for Mercedes is is really good. And the last couple of weeks or like a week or two ago, I've been watching a lot of snooker. I've recently in the last year or so become interested in snooker because it is obviously equally as... um, fast-paced and adrenaline-fueled as Formula One. I know, wait, it's the opposite of what I've just said. But I'm going to use a couple of metaphors that often used in snooker. So Mercedes as a team, and so far especially George, they seem to be able to get a good, solid result, even without the good car, in the same way that the very best snooker players seem to be able to win games when they're not in form at all. You know, they win games with their B or C or maybe D game. So even when they're not playing the best, they can still end up in the final of the World Championship. And then they'll turn it on. And I think that's what Mercedes are going to do. It's something that if anybody that watches snooker, snooker, if anybody that watches snooker saw Judd Trump play in the World Championship this year, Leading up to the final, and he got to the final, there wasn't a game that you thought, oh, we've seen the best of this guy. He's played unbelievably much better than he did in this World Championship loads more times. But he just seemed to always win. There was a game when like, literally none of the statistics were in his favour. You know, Balls potted, highest breaks, long pot accuracy, middle pocket accuracy. None of those statistics were in his favour. He'd lost every single statistic, but he'd still won the game. And then that kind of thing just pulls you through whilst you're not on form, and then you can turn it on, if you're one of the greats, in the final stages. It's a bad metaphor, just purely because Trump didn't actually do that. You know, he came back a bit in the final, but not enough, and lost. So maybe that'll be the case for Mercedes. But but that's my snooker-Formula 1 comparison. We'll see if that comes off. As I've said, the upgrades that everyone's going to start bringing now for the next couple of races are going to be unbelievably important for swinging the championship because it's going to be so easy for people to go completely the wrong way. And some people might. I can't even remember how many teams have said they're going to bring upgrades in the US. They didn't. Or at least if they did, they didn't make a huge amount of difference, I don't think. Um, I mean, it may be we find out for sure who really understands their car from all of these upgrades and who is just hoping that what they're doing is correct. I feel as if Ferrari, Red Bull, McLaren and Williams seem to be the teams that best understand their car at the moment. Maybe McLaren's not in that group. They seem to, after every race, sort of say, oh, we don't know how we did what we did there. And especially after Miami, they're going to be like, oh, Daniel didn't seem 
on the pace at all, and Lando was doing okay until he got gaslit. Aston Martin seem to understand at least, I think, especially on the performance in Australia. I mean, we've heard multiple radio messages from the drivers saying how terrible and unpredictable and undrivable the car is. And if it wasn't for Imola, it would seem as if they had no idea why that is. Um, they sort of clawed it back with double points, but I get the impression that the mixed conditions in qualifying suits their drivers, and then just nobody moved around dramatically after once the race had started. So I don't know if that would be representative. Um, in Australia, Williams did successfully do a lot in race strategy, which is the opposite to what anyone else is doing. A lot of the time, doing the opposite of what everyone else is doing is not good because there's a reason that everyone else is not doing it. But but leaving Alex out for the whole race on a tyre that Alex said didn't seem to get any worse, great call. It didn't seem to be the case that it was a thing that they couldn't just replicate in other races, to be honest. Like, if the car works so good on the hard tyre, then it makes sense to use it as much as possible, no? Well, I suppose it can't work in every race, otherwise they just do it, but... I saw something the other day, I can't remember if it's a confirmed thing that they're going to do or not, but I think it might be a trial that they're going to try next year with the tyres in qualifying, where all the teams use the hard in Q1, the medium in Q2, and then the soft in Q3. And I think that could mix things up in a bigger way than it sounds, because so many cars have such a big difference in how their cars work on each tyre, that a team like Williams might get through on the hard in Q1 far easier than another team that hasn't got it working in the same way. You know, if, 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 if a team had to use hards in Q1, Mercedes might struggle because they have a real problem with tyre warm-up. And that's great for tyre management, but if you need to get it turned on for one lap, you're going to really struggle. And if Williams can just turn it on and get really consistent, fast laps out of a hard tyre suddenly the balance of teams and the order of the teams has completely changed. So I, I'd be genuinely interested to see that happen. Because I've always been interested by the, the way that these teams work differently on different compounds. I don't know if any of them even understand why it happens like that. Surely if you did, you'd just make a car that works on all of them. Maybe that's not possible. Maybe the tyre compounds are so different that you can't make a, t a car that works consistently on all of them. But it will be very interesting to see. In terms of Imola, and I know I'm jumping around a lot here between different races, but this is how my brain works. I'm going to use another snooker metaphor. And I think it works for all sports, to be fair. But Carlos Sainz, you get the impression that once you have a bad weekend in Ferrari, very few drivers have the ability to bounce back both in a way that helps themselves, but also in just how your luck works out. In Australia, it was all Carlos's fault that he ended up in the gravel. And then in Imola, he ended up in the gravel again, but this time there was essentially nothing he could do. And it's the same in snooker. You hit a bad shot, and then all of a sudden the luck swings against you too, and the things that you can't predict start happening to you, and your opponent gets all the luck. It's like the, the balls just start working in your favour. I don't really know how it works. It's probably just a correlation in our brains. Our brain makes the pattern, but 
it's nice to believe that the snooker gods work against players or work for the players in some in some way. And I think the F1 gods can work against some drivers and not others. I get the impression that Carlos has unfortunately solidified incredibly early on in the season that he'll be the de facto number two this year, even if that's not contractually the case. So although both Ferrari drivers have shown that neither of them have the sort of Verstappen-Hamilton level of composure when they make a mistake. They've both done similar things. And I think that comes with the sort of highly passion fuel environment of Ferrari as well. Both of them have messed up whilst sort of trying to claw back a result from the abyss. Carlos in Australia, Charles in Imola, rather than just taking a slightly shittier result on the chin in the long run of the season. I think Charles seems to have learned that like as he showed in Miami, just taking a number two, taking second position, just getting those points and keeping a bit of a lead whilst you're still working with an, a very literally upgraded car, minimally upgraded car, is going to sort him out. So let's hope that that sticks. And just a quick word on spending the amount of time that we all did, nervous of a Bottas and Russell uh, Imola repeat. Would have been very good for a Drive to Survive episode. I'm sure they'll ham it up somehow. Um, but I just wanted I just wanted both of them to finish the race and to say, hey, good battle, man. And I feel like we got a similar thing in Miami with Hamilton, Russell and Bottas all in similar places. You couldn't write it. And Bottas has come out afterwards the, after the race and said the only reason they got past him really is because of a mistake that he made because he was focused on them fighting each other behind him. So maybe he could have finished in a in a handy P5 if he hadn't been blinded by the silver arrows behind him. Final words on Miami. I mean, the majority of the race was about as good as it would be if you were to try and sail a boat out of that marina. You know, just dragging. It certainly spiced up at the end and... Overall, I think I can say I enjoyed it. I didn't enjoy all of the nonsense at the start or the end. I just thought it doesn't quite suit Formula One, the over-Americanization thing. It's it's a nice gimmick to have for a race. I don't want to see it at loads of others, is I think my opinion. Um, but one of the major things that we have learned is that Carlos Sainz looks great in an American football helmet. And that if you ever become a racing driver, just remember to dye your hair the same colour as one of the fastest cars on the grid. If Albon wants to continue getting points, then he's got to now switch his hair to blue. Because it seems that, you know, Red Bull have, have, the other, have, the, have the upper hand somewhat now over Ferrari. It seems that if George has dyed his hair silver during the Mercedes domination over the last few years while he was at Williams, he probably would have been scoring points at multiple races. And would have gotten himself in that Mercedes when it was actually decent. Just some food for thought. And on that food for thought, that's where I'm going to leave it. We have covered Australia, Imola and Miami. Three, I think, very important races for the storylines that are going to make up the 2022 season. I know it's come at a time where arguably nobody cares about those races anymore and I can only apologise for being slightly late to the party on those races, but consider it covered now and consider it in the history books. In the next episode, I will go over the Spanish Grand Prix, and then we'll go on to Monaco. 
some very interesting things happened in Spain that need covering and need talking about. And Monaco looks very much set this weekend for a very interesting race. It's supposed to be sunny for practice and for qualifying, and then maybe just a bit of rain on Sunday. And so if these cars weren't already difficult enough to handle with their bigger wheels, no visibility, much heavier, nobody knows how they work yet, it's going to be incredibly interesting to see people have a go at them on a wet track. So fingers crossed that it's not just a procession like normal. And also fingers crossed that we get to see some of the cars you know, in logical places whilst they go around a race. And it's not the case, like last year, that the TV directors want to focus on completely the wrong thing around a track and, well, to be fair to them, inspiring a lot of memes based on Lance Stroll. So come on, Lance. Keep going across that chicane, mate. You might get into more memes. For now, this has been the F1 More Thing podcast. I've been Joe Pilbrow and still am. Thank you very much for listening and for bearing with us. I'll see you in the next episode of F1 More Thing, a podcast so unreliably timed that it almost doesn't matter what I talk about. We'll be talking about the 1984 Spanish Grand Prix, maybe next year. Why not? <laughs>